Welcome to another episode of Not So Gentle Reminder. I'm Dr. Christina, a board-certified pediatric emergency medicine doc. And I'm Dr. Vicki, a board-certified neonatal intensivist. We are friends and pediatricians who survived our training to become skilled but salty physicians. We are excited to share with you our evidence-based take on important pediatric topics. This episode is going to be a medical episode that will be taking a deep dive into seizures associated with fever. We have spent a good amount of time talking about what a fever is, what your body's doing, what your child's body is doing, and how generally it's not a big deal. Except when it is, which is for babies under 60 days old. And in those cases, we think harder. We look more closely for where bad infections may be hiding or what we call serious bacterial or invasive bacterial infections that may need hospitalization or treatment and that should cause panic in everybody. But we're going to turn to yet another special case of fevers, and that's not your garden variety fever, not your baby person fever, but fevers associated with seizures or what we call febrile seizures. We see this all the time in the emergency department. Ambulances and EMS are often bringing them in because among things that most people find scary, spider, the dark, for me, heights, taxes. Taxes, indeed. It's incredibly scary to watch your child have a seizure. It's the most drama they can create without doing it on purpose. And it's also primarily happening to toddlers, so it makes it extra dramatic. And it is really, really hard for parents to feel helpless because a lot of the time, all you can do is wait. And we'll give you some extra information about the different criteria, how to define things, how to keep your child safe, and then what you can expect if ultimately you have to come into the emergency department. I completely second that. It is terrifying. I think if it's not demonic possession that terrifies you, seizures should. It can come on kind of like a thunderclap out of nowhere and often a background of illness already. So you're already miserable and then your kid tosses this cherry on top at you. So I feel for parents who see this. It's the most frightening thing. But let's get a little bit more specific about the terms here. So first, let's define what is a seizure. So most people have watched a movie, TV show, have seen this behavior, and you think that it's a bunch of shaking, and there's a lot of terminology around it. People toss around grand mal, petite mal. I don't have the French background to be able to say these appropriately. But basically, a definition of a seizure from Johns Hopkins They define it as a burst of uncontrolled electrical activity between brain cells, which are neurons or nerve cells, that causes temporary abnormalities in muscle tone or movements. So stiffness or twitching or limpness, behaviors, sensations, or states of awareness. So let's break that down a tiny little bit. The cells in the brain communicate using electricity, and there's a balance between more excitation or more inhibition. That's essentially their electrical language. There's a normal background of what we think of as electrical activity. So it's not that the brain sticks its hand in a socket. But when that communication gets too much in one direction or the other, you get this organized burst of electrical activity. You can see it. It looks like a wave when you look at the actual printout, and that's a seizure. So it's this big burst of electrical activity. And because the brain has this map of all the organs, you start seeing shaking and flailing and changes like they described here, stiffness or shaking or twitching or limpness or changes even in the state of awareness, which I think is profoundly frightening. So that's just a seizure, an abnormal electrical discharge. And we'll circle back around as we're 
talking about the individual criteria of the two different types of febrile seizures. But I think if this is the primary definition that you refer back to, I think it's the most helpful because it does capture the spectrum of what can be happening. Build a little bit on Dr. V's explanation. The normal excitatory inhibitory thing, your your brain is doing that all all on its lonesome. You don't need to be doing anything. You're not really controlling anything. It's just going on because our bodies are really smart. Looking at the criteria for febrile seizures, a simple febrile seizure, which is about 85%, there's a range that is given in most studies of febrile seizures, you have to have a fever. Our favorite, expected that one. It's 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. It usually occurs when the temperature is rising, and most commonly it's indicative of viral infections. It lasts less than 15 minutes total. You don't have any additional episodes within the next 24 hours. You can potentially have additional episodes within a couple of days of illness that you have, and then the appearance of the seizure will be generalized. We should probably spend a little time with generalized because that's a very specific medical term. I don't know if you want to take this. I will, but I will just say that thinking about what you said, that it lasts less than 15 minutes, I think there's time and then there's like holy cow time. And holy cow time is when you're on a train late for work or when you are stuck in traffic or when you're experiencing pain. I have not, as far as I know, had a febrile seizure, but I have had a mammogram. And let me tell you, that thing lasts approximately, I don't know, seconds. And I think I was there for a full year. I was coming out expecting the leaves to have fallen. I got in August. I was expecting snow to be on the ground. Time just passes so differently. And when we say 15 minutes, I don't know any parent who looks at their kid flailing, seizing, eyes rolling back in their head, whips out you their- You whip out your watch. Stopwatch. Yeah, exactly. Alice in Wonderland rabbit style. And then just as like, child, you seize away. I will keep time. We're going to divide labor here. So I think this one's really tough. And it's such a difficult expectation to have of parents to ask, how long did this last? Just wait it out. It's fine. I think the only options are infinity, right? How long does it last? An infinite amount of time, forever. Three eternities, that's the unit of time. There is, I would say, and we'll get to this a little bit later when we're talking about how to keep your kids safe, but you don't necessarily have to be twiddling your thumbs at home in those 15 minutes. If it's lasting much longer than five minutes, that's when you're really thinking maybe time for 911, maybe time for an ambulance, someone with some training to take a look at your kid. And to take a look at you, you need smelling salts yourself. At least I would. All right. So back to simple febrile seizures. So most of these are simple. Like you said, 85% of febrile seizures are simple. And that means they occur with a fever like we talked about. They're less than 15 minutes or less than three eternities. So like two and a half eternities and they're generalized. So like you said, generalized, that gets back to that electrical activity of the brain. So those terms of tonic-clonic, grand mal are back. But essentially what that means is that the electrical activity is hitting both sides of the brain. So each side of the brain corresponds to a different side of the body, and you're going to see twitching and movement in both sides of the body. So it's extra frightening. And you may even see a little bit more motion. When we talk about the limbs, you might see a little bit more in the arms than the legs. It may be very impressive. And there's not typically an obvious difference between the two sides. And typically, these come with a change in the level of awareness. So your child who's previously paying attention to you may be whimpering and crying. Their eyes might roll back in their head. They might be completely unresponsive during or they may be staring at you while this happens, which is also pretty freaky. And then afterwards, they look pretty terrible. They can be quite sleepy. They can look sort of weak or they may be tense or they may be limp. This is the stuff of nightmares, nightmares that last two and a half eternities, but less than 15 minutes. 
And that's simple. That's the NBD one. That's the one that everyone wants. That's the good kind. I know. The sleepiness that comes after the medical term for that is a post-ictal, meaning after a seizure. And that's actually really common. If you think about what is most metabolically expensive, a big electrical surge to your brain, pretty metabolically expensive. So it's very, very normal to be a little bit sleepy. The other kind being a complex febrile seizure, this is roughly the other 5 to 10%, depending on the studies you're looking at. This also requires a fever. So you have to be greater than 38. And then it can last greater than 15 minutes. So we are surpassing that three lifetimes. You might have more than one episode within 24 hours. And then your kid might not return to their baseline in that you might have this period of time afterwards where they're a little bit sleepy. But then once an appropriate amount of time has passed, you're still like, ah, this is a little bit different. Like, this is not my kid. And this is where we really need parents' help because you know what's normal, not normal. There is a huge difference between bouncy, aggressive, super energetic toddlers who we know when they're ready to leave the hospital because they're terrorizing other patients. And then you might just have a quieter child and that can be very normal. So we do really heavily rely on parents to tell us when their kid is back to normal. And then lastly, it's considered a focal seizure as opposed to that generalized term that we used before. Focal, unlike that generalized that's hitting both sides of the brain and discharging everything, limbs, brain, the whole shebang, focal means that that electrical activity is really concentrated or arising from one specific spot on the brain, typically on one side. So you might see the eyes sort of fixed and staring more towards one side. You might see only one side is moving, like one arm is twitching. That can be pretty common. I don't think this is necessarily less frightening than the generalized. It just looks different when you see it. So who does this happen to and why does this happen? Why? We don't really know. We've tried a lot to figure it out, both in animal models as well as observational studies, because we mostly try not to um, trigger seizures in children just to study them. It's not really ethical. The most common patients that this happens to are six months old to five years. It's much more common than you might think. It's roughly 2 to 5% of all children before the age of five will have at least one febrile seizure. This could be a one and done. Other kids have multiple episodes. And as I said, we don't really know. We know that there is a slight correlation to a family history. So if you have a first degree relative, a sibling, a parent, you might have a slightly higher risk of this happening. I think it's an uncle. I think there's always an uncle. Anytime I get a family history on someone, they're like, this has never happened before ever. And then five minutes later, they're like, you know, there was this one uncle. At the family reunion. It's never an aunt. It's never an aunt. I have to tell you, it's always been an uncle. Yeah. I'm someone that has an uncle and an aunt, and I can tell you it's the uncle. It's always the uncle. No shade to uncles out there. I just think you're in the family history for some reason. Just more commonly. And generally speaking, when we start to talk about what we do after a febrile seizure, it's honestly not that much. It's not because we do not share your concern about you having watched probably one of the more traumatic things that you have seen in your child's young life. It's not because we don't care about your child. It's just because your child's brain is actually really plastic. And when we talk about the concept of neuroplasticity, what it means is because your kid's brain is growing, developing, doing all of these things to make it more efficient and grow up into the big, beautiful adult brain that it will become, it is just really resilient. And I think in general, that is one of the big reasons why we don't have to do anything because it might never happen again. And it often doesn't change what beautiful flower your child will eventually become. Unless your child becomes an uncle. That's a whole nother story. 
and then they're in the family history. And then I find out about it and talk smack about it on the pod. This is so unsatisfying. The mismatch between how terrible it looks and what we do for it could not be starker. Your child spontaneously combusts and we're like, yeah, that must be rough. Sorry about it. It's brutal. Thanks for coming. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Enjoy the bill. That is probably the worst part of it. How expensive this whole endeavor turns out to be, including emotionally, but also financially. This is so brutal. But essentially, this is a data-driven approach. This doesn't come from laziness. It comes from rigorous study that did not yield a great definition of which subpopulation would benefit from more intervention, but really said overall, there's not a ton more to do. So the most current guideline on this comes out from 2011, so probably time for a bit of a refresh, but not a ton more has changed in the interim. So this is a guideline that looked at 10 years of scientific literature, so they did their homework, 203 separate journal articles, and then for the current current guideline, this was an update on that, another 373. So more than 500 individual journal articles, each containing multiple participants, were reviewed to build this. And they really looked at it from soup to nuts, including what was done and what patients actually benefited from. They did say that there is a population besides uncles that we have to, and besides tiny babies, that we have to think more closely about. So who is that population? The special population, it's always babies. All your children are special flowers, but some are extra special flowers. The special flowers who had a febrile seizure, the ones that we actually have to think a little bit more about, we use that six months to five years. If it's considered an extreme of age or kind of outside that pretty narrow window, we have to be like, "Mm, a little bit more odd if your teeny tiny baby has a febrile seizure or a little bit more odd if your nine-year-old has a febrile seizure just because some of their brain development has continued gracefully over their early childhood. We also think about whether or not your child has been vaccinated. If they are unimmunized, there are certainly particular infections, H influenza being a big one, and a pneumococcal infection that we have to do some thinking because those patients are unfortunately at significantly higher risk for meningitis, which can certainly prompt a seizure. And then the other big thing is whether or not your child is developmentally normal. And I'm not saying this as a judgment call on the spectrum of development, but is there another possible explanation that the motor delay or the speech delay that your child has is representative of something underlying happening in their brain? Some of it is also just totally unrelated to your child at all. It's just related to the features of how they got to the hospital. Did you go to a different hospital first? Were you en route in an ambulance? Did you get antibiotics automatically at an outside hospital? And it's a little bit unfair because these are all things that parents don't have control over. But it goes into our risk stratification calculators anyway, right? It does. So through no fault of your own, you might get a slightly different workup just because of where you happen to live, how close you are to a children's hospital, what kind of guidelines they are adhering to. I would love to say that medicine across the board, we through osmosis and the weird telepathic connection that we all physicians do the same thing for every single child, but it's just not true. Even with data-driven guidelines? Even with the data-driven guidelines, they're really applied a little bit differently depending on your hospital and your local EMS protocols. In terms of other testing, what are some other things that we use when we're looking at those kids with seizures that parents might think about when they come in after this? 
So if I walked into the ED and had one of these, I am deeply outside, many eternities outside the target age range, like several thousands of eternities outside of it. So I would get the mega workup. You'd scan my brain six ways to Sunday. You would put on an EEG, which is an electroencephalogram. That's that tracing of electrical activity. But we do not recommend these for children. We do not recommend doing an EEG. We do not recommend doing a ton of lab work at all. We do not recommend imaging the brain with either a CT or with an MRI. What you expect when you're in the ambulance is you want the cavalry to descend and you want the neurologist to be at the bedside with their clipboard, with their x-ray vision and that does not happen. Usually these patients, especially the ones that have simple febrile seizures, so less than 15 minutes associated with a fever and generalized, those patients just get sent home again with that hospital bill. Um, And it may be after a period of observation, after we have a sense from you, the parent, that the child has returned to baseline. And sometimes they have something called Todd's paralysis. So there may be a lack of motion or some stiffness or a bit of paralysis sometimes in a focal area. So just one part of the body or a bit more generalized. And that can come on a little bit later and it can last a little bit. And then the seizure, unfortunately, after we sent you home may also recur. I think it's really difficult because, as you said, you would get the whole shebang. It would be like the deluxe treatment. And you're kind of like, you know, I care about your brain, but like, shouldn't we care about the child's brain a little bit more? A savable brain, right? Mine is cooked. It is what it is. Uh, I know. Exactly. You are a fully formed human. And when we are judging things like that, we're looking at whether or not there are other risks inherent to the testing that we're going to do. We also do consider things like cost. And it's not to say that we wouldn't provide care that is very necessary. It's more when we're thinking about whether or not you need a CT or a CAT scan, which looks at the brain overall, there is a risk of radiation. Your child's brain being happily neuroplastic and changing all the time is at higher risk than our fully cooked brains. And we're thinking about the years in their lifetime that they have to get exposed to radiation and trying to minimize it as much as possible when they're younger because there is a risk of secondary cancer. Overall, when we've studied it, the risk of that CT scan outweighs the benefits. And even with complex febrile seizures, there was a study that came out of pediatrics in 2006. They showed that even with complex febrile seizures or ones that looked a little bit different, evolved in a more terrifying manner, there really were no intracranial or in-the-brain findings that required any type of surgical or medical intervention. So we've looked very, very specifically at this. And then similarly, those EEG or the electroencephalogram hasn't been shown to help further diagnose why this happened or further dictate care. It hasn't shown children to have different brain activity on that EEG be higher risk for recurrence or if they ultimately might develop epilepsy or a seizure disorder. So in general, it's just not that helpful from a testing standpoint. And it's a pretty high resource test. Hopefully, you would want the child that needs it to get it, and your child with their simple febrile seizure unfortunately doesn't need it. And then the biggest question that we get is, is it going to happen again? And this is a hard answer too. Maybe. So far, we've just said sorry about it. We've said we won't do tests because they don't tell us anything useful. And will it happen again? Probably. Maybe. Maybe. Probably. Possibly. I don't know. I'll only know after you come back to the ED for another non-workup and another bill. 
So there is about a third, so 30 to 35% recurrence rate. Sometimes it's a little bit higher if your child is younger when the first seizure occurred. And also those that have that uncle, uh, no, those that have a parent or a sibling with a history of febrile seizures. So it may happen again. It's not that this is guaranteed to be a one and done, which is an additional challenge that parents are facing in this already delightful scenario. So you're saying it might recur. Mm -hmm. You don't know. Mm -mm. So you're not going to test for it. No. You're not going to look at their brain. You're just going to assume they have a big, beautiful brain. I'm going to hope for the best. And hope for the best. But surely there is a medication to prevent it, to do something. I can prescribe you a watch to see how long it lasts in the future. We're not sponsored by any watches, but we would love to be. Just putting that out there. So no, there is not a medication that we typically give. There are some abortive medications that can stop the seizure if it's lasting a very, very, very long time. If it's super prolonged, something that we call status epilepticus that also has a strict definition, you can give medications. Often those are not super desirable to give because you have to give them either rectally, which is diazepam or diastat, or you have to give intranasal midazolam or a Versed. I don't know that in a seizing person you feel terrific about administering something either rectally or intranasally, especially if the seizure is quite severe. And we don't generally recommend preventative medications for most cases of this. So hope for the best and you can't really treat it. So in addition, you'd think, okay, I can't treat the seizure. I can't know if it happens again. Let me at least keep my child fever free forever until someone's willing to do a workup. And even that is not the case. You can lower their temperature all you want with Tylenol and Motrin, but not really. It's not really going to prevent it from happening. So no sleep. Forever. No sleep ever again when your child has a fever is the gist. And as you said, giving those anti-fever medications like Tylenol, Motrin, there isn't really a reduction in risk. And similarly, there's this big group called the Cochrane Database Review. We will refer to them as frequently as we can. Love those guys. I know they gave these really high quality reviews, something called a meta-analysis. They looked at all the articles from 1946 to 2020. Huge span. So they had a lot of free time. Exactly. They had a lot of free time, a lot of minions to do a lot of the the data crunching. And they looked at all sorts of different medication protocols, scheduling Tylenol Motrin. We used to use aspirin. Please don't give that to your child. Whether or not they should be using anti-seizure medication specifically. And basically, they looked through all of this information and found no useful medication protocol. And we talked about it a little bit when we're considering whether or not to take a look at their brain. Some of the medication treatments are associated with pretty significant side effects in about 30%. So if you can't even guarantee that the medication is going to prevent the seizure from happening at the expense of a pretty significant risk of some unwanted side effect, it turns into a conversation about what's worse. Is it worse to give this medication that probably won't have a whole lot of benefit? Or is it worse to be on the edge of your seat at all times? Hard to say. Very hard to say for parents. Oh, it's easy in the doctor's coat to say for the most part, most of the time, it's usually totes fine. Best of luck. But there is good news. There, There is good news. There's a light at the end of the tunnel when we talk about febrile seizures, both simple and complex. How do those kiddos do? Are they usually happy, healthy? They usually do 
fine. It's rare for me to be delivering good news of an avowed pessimist, but let's do it. I'll try it once. Essentially, most of these patients do fine. The prognosis overall for neurodevelopment is quite good. There are rare neuro deficits, but not at a huge rate above the baseline population of all children. So there are thousands of children that have been studied and followed for this and very few deficits. So most of them looked just fine at one month and one year after this seizure. So most of the time they turn out fine, despite the fact that we offer nothing for them. I know. It's pretty It's pretty amazing. So I'm thankful every day about the resiliency of the pediatric patient. I think the next question that usually comes up is, does this mean that my kid has a seizure disorder? Do they have epilepsy? And if you compare the overall risk for the general population, it's actually between 1% and 2% of the general population, the lifetime risk of having a seizure disorder. If your child has one simple febrile seizure, they're closer to that 2% and of the spectrum, but it isn't really raised a whole lot above your baseline lifetime risk. When we're looking at who is at higher risk for developing a seizure disorder, ultimately, it's family history of epilepsy or a seizure disorder. If they had a complex febrile seizure, that risk does increase a little bit more. I want to emphasize that that's only 5 to 10% of this overall patient population. So it's a small percentage of an even smaller percentage, which of course is not reassuring for those families who have had a child with a complex febrile seizure, but ultimately you might not be one of those families. Again, we do think a little bit harder about children who are otherwise developmentally delayed, have other things in their medical history that might be trying to tell us that there's something just a little bit different about their brain, a little bit different about their brain activity, and ultimately a febrile seizure is just kind of a sentinel or like a precursor to when we're figuring out exactly what their brain will look like as they get older. So to recap, we don't know who will have one. It looks terrible when it happens. We want you to take out your watch. And that's essentially the best tool you've got. When you get to the hospital, we do almost no testing. We send you home with no medication and also no guarantees that it won't happen again. And we say, don't worry, because most of the time this works out completely fine. And that there is a very small subpopulation that this is associated with increased risk, but we're not smart enough to figure out who exactly that is yet. And the only way we'll know if that's your child is when it happens again. Exactly. Yeah. Despite our best efforts and despite research efforts, it's unfortunately an area that requires a little bit more information. But Again, I want to emphasize those happy, healthy, growing, developing kid brains are exactly that, even when they have something as spectacular as a seizure happen when they're when they're sick. So that is kind of the the like reassurance, which will never sound reassuring when it happens. But I think we can give some tips about how to keep your kids safe in a bubble. Obviously, that's as far as I got. That's that's the most effective one. <laughs> I don't know if it's evidence-based. The end. Cut. That's just my personal feeling. But if you ask about the evidence, eh. what we do have are some recommendations about 
ideas for what to do. So first is try to get your child into a position of comfort, ideally on a firm, not very cluttered surface, hopefully not a bunch of sharp objects and preferably on their side so that that can help manage some secretions if they have any. Don't put anything in their mouth. There's this media recommendation of like shove something in there. It'll prevent them from biting down. No, it won't. What it will do is make sure that they bite down, accrue a dental injury on top of everything else that's going on, have a bloody tongue, broken teeth, and you'll have a spatula with a bite mark in it if the spatula is your weapon of choice, spoon, whatever it is that people use. So position of comfort on a firm, uncluttered surface, avoid further dental injury, don't put anything in their mouth. And then as you're standing there watching them seize away with a mouth that is spatula free, take a peek at your watch, see if the seizure is lasting more than five minutes, because then there may be an opportunity to either get more help or if you've been someone that's been to the ED and has been advised to do so, consider medication. That's it. That is just as unsatisfying as the rest of the story on febrile seizures. So we've not been helpful or satisfying, but we've been consistent. (laughs) Very consistent. Consistent across the board. Are there points allocated for that? Shall we recap? Yes, let's. Let's sum up this medical episode covering febrile seizures with a few not-so-gentle reminders and practical tips. Our first not-so-gentle reminder that seizures in the context of fever are, unfortunately for all of us, more common than you think. They occur in roughly 2 to 5% of all children under the age of 5. They may be simple. They may be complex according to definitions that we've given, but honestly, other than treating the fever, it doesn't change anything, and there's not much that we can do. Our next not so gentle reminder is that if your child is one of the children that has a febrile seizure, we do test or provide rescue medications in very special cases, usually when there are developmental concerns, if your child is not fully immunized, but usually the risks and costs associated with the additional testing and medication outweighs the benefits. And the other big positive is that your child's brain is really plastic. It's very adaptable. And for the most part, there will be no long-term side effects. So what you can do to keep your child safe is try to put them on a firm, uncluttered surface. Try to time how long this whole thing takes. If it's more than five minutes, you can consider calling 911 and no spatulas. Most importantly. Most importantly, no spatulas. Most importantly. Do not put the whole episode just needs to be retitled. Febrile seizures no spatulas. Do not put anything in their mouth. Thank you so much for listening. We would love it if you subscribed and left us a five-star review. We do want this to be helpful for you, so we are very eager for your feedback. You can provide that feedback in a lot of different ways. You can email us at notsogentlereminder at gmail.com. You can slide into our DMs on the gram at notsogentlereminder. Tell us about your uncle. You can call us at 917-426-6908. You can tell us what you'd like us to cover, any products you may want us to review, how we can make this better for you, any questions that you may have. See our show notes for links and our website, notsogentlereminder.com for episode transcripts. Our next episode will be a companion episode. It does build on the theme of trying to keep your child safe and where to seek CPR classes. So please stay tuned. And here comes our disclaimer. Although we are doctors, we're not your doctors. This podcast does not represent the opinions of our employers. It is purely for education and entertainment. Every child and every family is unique. If you're experiencing a medical emergency, please call 911. 
If you have specific questions about the care of your child, please be in touch with their doctor. Mm -hmm.